Hi, I'm Dr. Akiva Down. And I'm Rabbi Avi Green. And welcome to Interesting Questions. In this podcast, we'll be addressing issues that are philosophical, religious, and psychological in nature. We will be focusing on that which is considered to be controversial, and there may not be a right or wrong answer. So we are hoping that our discussions will yield more questions for your Shabbos table. Shavua Tov, and welcome back to Interesting Questions. We are up to the fifth parak of Pirkei Avot, Mishnah number 12, Mishnah Yudbet. At four periods of the seven-year cycle, do pestilence increase? In the fourth year and in the seventh year. And in the period following the seventh year. And at the period at the end of of Sukkot, each year. On the fourth year, because of those who would neglect giving the poor from the third year's uh, crops. In the seventh year, because of neglecting to give to the poor because of the sixth year. And at the end of the seventh year, because of the fruit of the seventh year, the sabbatical year, and at the end of the Sukkot Chag, because there would be each year a stealing of the mandated gifts that one is required to give to the poor. So, Akiva, this brings to mind two things. One, it's interesting that they're saying that there's this, uh, this cycle that happens. And usually when we see cycles like this happening, it is attributed to something that someone did wrong. But here it seems to be attributing what went wrong and natural consequences. In other words, if you had given to the poor that which needed to be given, then there wouldn't be things left in the field for the, for the, the pestilence to come and eat. Um, on the other hand, right, and if you, and, and on the other hand, right, you can't eat that seventh year fruit, and so it gets eaten. It gets eaten by the, by the pestilence. Um, so that's one piece that I find interesting about this Mishnah. And the other piece is, supposedly we're in a year where there's supposed to be an amazing number of cicadas. And I'm wondering, right, they, they also run in certain, in certain years. And I'm curious if that ha- may have any connection to... I believe it's 3 and 11, which is why it's a big deal when there's an overlap. Uh, two to five years. I have a life cycle of 13 or 17 years. Hmm. 
Okay, well, in any case, maybe it has nothing to do with cicadas, but it does seem to have to do with both a uh, religious fault and a natural consequence to it. Any thoughts on that? Avi, I think one of the things that I'd be curious, and maybe you can clarify this, is, you know, without without the uh, the additional commentary at the bottom, they really leave a lot of text out of this Mishnah. Do you kind of want to maybe go over a little bit before we even talk about the Mishnah itself? I realize we're kind of far into this Mishnah, but the the concept of leaving out necessary text and leaving room for commentary. Maybe maybe you want to talk a little bit about that. Sure. Uh, well, Mishnah was written in a shorthand. It is the notes that the rabbis would write themselves, and then Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi collected those notebooks and then transcribed them with additions and subtractions into... A, a more formal text. Um, originally, the me- they were meant to be memorized, and so therefore there are often uh, mnemonic devices included in the Mishnah, but in the end, the best mnemonic device is making it short and getting it to the point. And so I think that that was, at least in part, what the Mishnah tried to do. It also, because it was learned by people with significant background. Um, You could speak in shorthand and people would know what you were talking about because they had learned the same texts you had learned and they had engaged in the same sorts of learning you had done. And if not, then that's what your teacher was for, your rabbi was for, that you would go and you would uh, jump in and say, I don't understand what is this concept of Matanot Aniim, that every so many years uh, we are required to give gifts to the poor. Um, and your rabbi would explain it. Oh, uh, but, but Avi, so for example, like, it says Hechag. It doesn't refer to Chaga Sukkot. And I have to say, I'm not familiar with any place where we uh, refer to Chaga Sukkot simply as Hechag. So, the Torah refers to Chag, um, and it often refers to Shmini Atzeret as Chag. Um, and so, when it says Sukkot, I think it's referring to the end of Sukkot, right, which would be after Shmini Atzeret, because Shmini Atzeret always falls at the end of Sukkot. Um, but it's a separate day. It is a separate day, but at the... but but. Don't forget that we're looking at the art scroll translation, and a translation is always an interpretation. And so, um, if I had read that without the art scroll commentary, I might have assumed that Chag referred to Shmini Atzeret, uh, just as the as the Torah often does. So here too, I think that they're talking about. You know, they're, they're, the Mishnah is using the shorthand, and even the the art scroll translation is leaning into that shorthand and assuming that people have a certain level of knowledge. Um, because even if we looked at the art scroll commentary, they 
to give a little bit of background about sabbatical year and um, people who are stealing the mandated gifts of the poor, but not really enough to explain the whole concept. They figure that you either already have an understanding of the concept or you will go find it somewhere else. They're not giving you the entire background on when sabbatical gifts were given, how they were given, um, and it's one of those pieces that is generally true of rabbinic literature, so that we find ourselves using this shorthand of discussion, and it's also part of what can make learning these texts challenging, especially for those who are beginning learners, um, because there's so many inside references. It can be particularly difficult for students who are just beginning to learn this text or these types of text to be able to follow along. There are also keywords, less so in the Mishnah, although sometimes, and more so in the Talmud, in the Gemara, that indicate certain types of events are about to happen. That there's going to be a statement from the Torah or that someone's bringing a proof that they're about to ask a question or that it's a statement of disbelief. And so when we have those kinds of, of statements, there is an expectation that as one learns and, and studies the text in order to know enough to recognize, recognize those road signs, then they're able to, uh, to navigate the text as a whole. Okay, well, now that we got that out of the way, um, and I've had kind of a chance to, to think of a little bit more about what I'm thinking with this particular Mishnah, and I, I don't know, Avi, I don't know that it necessarily is a, a cause and effect situation with pestilence, because to me, the suggestion is, is that if you're not leaving proper tithes, if you're not providing proper tithes, a big part of really the the matanot evyonim is for the stuff you leave behind. And my thinking would be is that one may assume if those areas and those things are left behind in the field, that's for indigent people to come and, and get that. So to me, it actually would seem that it's a supernatural consequence because presumably these particular individuals who are not holding by these necessary laws are in fact taking all of the produce and not leaving anything. So I think I understood it slightly differently. I don't think I understood it as that they were taking the produce for themselves. Rather, I got the feeling they were leaving the produce behind. And when none of the poor were coming, either coming to take it or were having, or, or nor was it being delivered to them, then it led to infestation. But this talks about not giving those tithes. And, and we know that for... Uh, you know the sabbatical years it was there was no ownership so anyone could come and take it 
So wouldn't that be that there was none to be taken if you're neglecting your gifts and your responsibilities? Because you would have to put it in some kind of storehouse. Otherwise, what's to stop someone from coming and taking it? And then any, presumably any judge would say, hey, this is, they took it from the corner. The, you know, three other guys saw them taking from the corners where they're entitled to. You left it. They took it. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, so I got the impression this wasn't a case where people were harvesting it and then holding it. My impression was that this was more of a case where it was, uh, you know, I don't have to take, I, I, I'm, I'm not taking an active stance to make it happen as opposed to I'm not doing anything wrong, right? I'm, I'm sort of standing idly by. I'm letting the field grow in the corners. Somebody wants to come and take it, great. Nobody comes to take it, well, next year it becomes mine again. Well, but that's not true. It doesn't become yours. The corners are always the corners. Well, maybe not the corners, but that which has been left behind or that which is... But if you leave it behind also, it's it might sprout, okay, or it might just rot. And I agree, okay, you could create pestilence, but I don't know. I, I think this is more of a, to me at least, this reads of more of an active punishment as opposed to as you're suggesting, a, a passive act. Because I just, I, I guess my understanding, my, my envisioning of the farming at that time, especially, I mean, I don't know that I can necessarily even envision farming now, uh, would be that you have all these different workers in the field and they're on the threshing, uh, well, not the threshing floor, or, I, I don't know, maybe they're in the field, we'll go with that. And... You have the main areas being taken care of by those whose job it was, you know, the ones who could have a chance snack, as it were, uh, of, I suppose, well, I hope fruit, because otherwise, why would you want to have a bite of barley? Right. Raw, um, raw, raw wheat and barley, not, yeah, not a good not snack. Agreed. Uh, so presumably fruit. But then you also commingled with them. And maybe this is what I think of because of uh, Megillat Root, where, you know, I, it kind of seems as everybody's doing this together. That's, I think, the only picture that comes to my mind when I think of this type of farming, uh, which is everybody's doing it at the same time. And so um, I would imagine that it would have to be left otherwise wouldn't the issue be for the poor not collecting it? And why would the poor be punished with pestilence? They don't have anything to really eat from pestilence. So the the uh, the summation that I'm coming to here, Akiva, is that neither you nor I know enough about agriculture uh, in ancient Israel to be able to really perhaps fully understand this Mishnah. If only we had Mr. Peabody. Hmm. We could go on the way back the back machine. Indeed. Uh, okay. And so I'm going to suggest we go to our question for Around the Shabbos Table, which this week goes to the concept of does 
punishment or perceived punishment correlate with our actions, with our lack of actions, or with other things that we just can't seem to understand. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to reach us, you can reach us at iqdiscuss at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and responding.